0: What do you do on
1: Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett. The acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all.
0: Oh! oh I'm not acting! <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica, meeting in the middle.
1: This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Mortada El Welcome to Sundays with Kate. The podcast series about the films of Kate Blanchett. Well, lovely listeners, the time has come. I'm coming in with a hurricane in me to command the wind. We are discussing Elizabeth's The Golden Age, perhaps the movie that includes the most famous scene of Kate Blanchett's career. The one where she commands the wind. You know it. If you're listening to this podcast, you love it. You know the scene. And since this is a sequel, joining me to discuss Elizabeth the Golden Age is Izzy from the wonderful and very addictive YouTube channel, Be Kind, Rewind, who you would remember if you've listened to our previous episode where we discussed Elizabeth, the first movie. So there was no better person than to ask Izzy back. Hi, Izzy.
0: Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? You know, we're all surviving. We're surviving, (laughs)
1: Um, Yes, in this crazy week that we're having that we don't need to talk about. It was very fun to me to just go back to this crazy movie, to be distracted by plots that makes no sense, by its costumes that are gorgeous to look at, and... To watch a movie where Kate Blanchett is at the center, she's either in the scene or people are talking about her or every character is trying to please her. And so that was fun to me. And also just looking back at all clips, that was really such a fun distraction
0: this week, yeah. um, you know, it's a good reminder that a lot of governments are unstable. and, you know, they made it through. We'll make it through. We're good. No worries.
1: For sure. So Elizabeth's The Golden Age is the sequel to Elizabeth, and it was released nine years after the original in 2007. And here, Kate Blanchett reprises her role as Elizabeth I. This new one starts several years after the first one ended, well into the reign of Elizabeth. She's supposed to be 52. The movie tells us it starts in 1585. And the film charts the latter years of Elizabeth the I's reign. And most prominently featured is the Spanish Armada War, which is famous for making the legend that the British Isles cannot be conquered in war because of how isolated they are. Everybody who tries will fail in those waters like the Spanish did in this movie. I love this movie for reasons that have nothing to do with how good it is or how enjoyable it is. I love it because you can just watch a lot of scenes and have fun with them and have a few enjoyable moments, not just the hurricane in me scene, which we'll dig into in detail later. There are a lot of other scenes where Kate is just funny, and she's taking command of the screen and looks amazing. And this is the kind of movie that I love. So Izzy, first, what did you think of the movie?
0: Yeah, so it's funny, I hadn't seen this movie in a really long time. And I think the last time we talked I was like oh yeah I think I remember liking the golden age better like isn't that a better movie and then I watched it again and I was like oh no it's (laughs) it's not um but I think it's sort of the same thing that you were saying where I think it's not a very good movie (laughs) in total um the plot is very muddled. It's really hard to understand like what the point of it is or, you know, it's dragging you in so many different directions. Um, But at the same time, it's kind of fun to watch because there's just so much Kate in it. And it's in a very comfortable role for her, which is where she's just in charge of people and like telling people what to do, (laughs) which um, love that for her. So, I would say that, you know, like on a technical level, if I were to talk about this film, it would be an entirely different thing. But just thinking about it in terms of what Kate brings to the table, then, you know, it's a different question. And I think she is better than the film in this case.
1: Yes, she's really fun to watch. I think what I noticed this time is the humor in the performance. In the first movie, Elizabeth was very serious. She was watchable and interesting, but she wasn't funny. And here, in this one, Kate has relaxed into the role, just as Elizabeth herself would have relaxed into being a queen for many decades. And she's really fun. She brings humor. She makes fun of Walttingham. She makes fun of the Austrian duke who comes into her court with a marriage proposal. I mean, this movie is still doing her marriage as a main plot. Yes, of course, Elizabeth used her virginity as a power tool. So I guess it's part of her history, but it was already done in the first movie. But anyway, Kate is fun in a lot of the scenes. I really love the humor that she brought to the performance. There were a lot of scenes that were funny and even scenes that were not funny. When she's very serious and asking Clive Owen to love her, the dialogue is so badly written. And even though she's trying her best to sort of sell the loneliness of this old monarch, I enjoyed it, but I also thought it was funny.
0: Yeah, um, I actually wrote down a line that I laughed out loud um, when she was like, "Do we discover the new world, or does it discover us?" And I l- honestly lost it. Like, I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard when I um, when she just like very earnestly delivered that line. And I was like, "Girl, you just had tobacco for the first time, huh?" Like, <laughs> she's like high, spouting out all this stuff. I don't know
1: yeah it's funny to me because you know michael hurst the writer and shaker kapoor the director they made the first movie so i don't know what happened to them in the interim in the nine years since the first movie they seem to have lost a lot of their faculties shaker just loves to whip the camera around and give us a lot of these 360 camera crane moves and sometimes i appreciated them when he used them to show off the costumes or all the wonderful production design Or just, you know, concentrating his camera on close-ups on Kate. But sometimes it didn't make a lick of sense. And you're like, why is there a crane shot right here? And to your point about the dialogue, this is the same guy who wrote Elizabeth, the first movie, so I don't know what happened to him. But yeah, it's very stilted and kind of sort of funny sometimes this time.
0: It felt just very unrestrained. Like they had just discovered a crane and they were like oh my god we should use this like this is crazy we should totally try um and then just did it a hundred times um and nobody thought to reel it in at all
1: and this is kind of why for me this movie works in stops and starts It's like if you're watching this movie and if you're in the United States and this movie is available on Prime Video for free if you have that subscription so you can just click and watch it and then you can watch a little bit, turn it off, come back to it later and pick it up wherever it is you left off because it's really muddled and the plot doesn't make any sense so it works best if you just watch it piecemeal, scene by scene because the scenes themselves are really fun to watch. Another thing I really... I wanted to talk about is that this movie is completely, like the first one, completely not historically accurate. It takes the broad strokes of history to tell its story, but there is scant historical accuracy. You know, I don't care um, if it was just a well-told story; like I wouldn't care about the historical accuracy. It would have been just fine, but I'm sure historians will cringe at this. So the main thrust of the narrative this time is the relationship between Elizabeth and Walter Raleigh. He is played. By Clive Owens. So he's a pirate. He comes bringing her gifts and she's intrigued by him. She actually says that right to the camera that he intrigues her. And then sort of, we sort of get into this flirtation and because of her position as the monarch, she can't really have an affair with a commoner, even though later in the movie, she does knight him and he becomes Sir Walter Raleigh. So she asks one of her ladies-in-waiting, played by Abby Cornish, her name is Bess, to talk to him. And so those two, Bess and Walter Raleigh, sort of had an affair and Elizabeth gets really really mad about that. But before we get there, there is a lot of scenes where Elizabeth is trying to flirt with Walter, which I thought were really fun to watch. And kind of I think the purpose of them maybe is to humanize the monarch, but I find them kind of even though they were fun to watch they were a little bit strained and this is where the dialogue like we talked about really hits rock bottom like there is some bad really cringy dialogue in those scenes but also there is humor because they were fun to watch and kate is really wonderful trying to sell this performance like one of my favorite lines is when he talks to her about being in a boat for months on end and how because of it's a lot of men on the boats, there is no place for a woman there because men have needs. And then she just looks at him and then repeats this stupid line, men have needs. And it's just such a funny moment.
0: <laughs> um, it's fu- I definitely didn't notice this the first time I watched it. But I really, the thing that I noticed this time, um, and maybe this is just because we're in a post-Carol world, But I was like, your chemistry with Abby Cornish is a hundred times better than it is with Clive Owens. Like they seem to have a much closer and intimate, a much more intimate relationship than um, with Walter Raleigh. Like kind of, kind of what you were saying. And I think maybe this is a character choice. Is her interactions with him are almost kind of robotic. Like she doesn't understand really how to flirt. She doesn't know how to make herself vulnerable um, or like open emotionally in a way with him because, I mean, why would she? She's kind of his boss in a way. So it's automatically like this very awkward dynamic between the two of them. Whereas with um, her lady and with Bess, lady in waiting, I think is what you would call her, I think she just, she's just so much more relaxed and like confident in how they're supposed to interact with each other. And I think it just um, relaxes her in a way that makes their relationship seem so much more real and authentic than anything that she um, does with Raleigh.
1: Yeah, and also if you look at those scenes between Elizabeth and Bess, There is a lot of touching. They're touching each other. And I liked what you said about her being able to be vulnerable with Bess, but not with Raleigh. I mean, with Bess, she takes her wig off. She takes her makeup off. She's shown taking a bath in one of the scenes. She is without the armor that Elizabeth puts around her. And so maybe that is a good thing. So even though we sort of dinged the writer and director for the dialogue and the crane shots and all of those things that kind of don't make sense, I think maybe in portraying Elizabeth, with her armor when she's with Raleigh and without when she's with Beth, that's where the movie gives us something to latch on to and enjoy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and also just one of the other funny parts in this movie, it just really had me reflecting on the state of Virginia and like the fact that it is named Virginia. Like, <laughs> I'm just imagining a scenario where um, Raleigh like goes up to Elizabeth and is like, hey, I named this place after you. And she's like, oh, like Elizabethtown? What is it? He's like, Virginia, because, you know, you're a virgin. Like, you just got dunked on so hard. And that has lasted for centuries. Like, that sucks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very funny. And the second part of the joke is that she says to him, what if I got married? Would you call it conjugia? Which is just so funny to imagine that that might have happened. Which is really why you can't take this movie seriously at all. And I think one of the things in reading the critical response to this movie is that everybody sort of reviewed it as another middling costume drama. I think they really got it wrong. They forgot to have fun with it. I think maybe the critics just didn't notice all these fun things that we were just talking about. Like, for example, the first film was really praised for its visceral aesthetic. It was very violent. It was sexy. You know, whether it's sexy or not, your mileage might vary, but it definitely had a lot of sex and sexual situations. And it was very, very violent with lots of blood. And so it was praised as this sort of not your regular costume historical drama. This is something new. And most of the critical response to the sequel was, oh, now they're just back to doing another costume drama like the... like so many others that we've seen what I think they miss in all of this is that there is fun to be had if you just let it go and forget about the plot which makes no sense at all forget trying to figure out what this movie is trying to say and just enjoy the scenes as they are because there is a lot of humor there are a lot of not great things but fun things to enjoy
0: yeah I think it's it sounds to me kind of like an expectations game. Like if you're seeing this for the first time having or thinking about Elizabeth and um, trying to take it seriously, then like of course it's going to feel, you know, so underwhelming and disappointing. And in a sense it kind of is because it never really crosses that threshold where, you know, it's taking itself so seriously as a period drama, but like it never becomes actual camp in a way to where it's clear, like, oh, you should be having fun with it. It's kind of like this retrospective understanding of it that, okay, yeah, we can we can play a little around with this and just not take ourselves too seriously as viewers. But I can definitely see how on a first watch with no other knowledge of it, except for having seen the first one, I'd be like, whoa, this is <laughs> terrible. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I love what you were just saying. So maybe the movie doesn't actually go the full camp because Shaker is afraid to go there or doesn't know how to go there, but it puts the burden on the viewer. Like we all need to do a little bit more work to enjoy it.
0: Just sort of like lose lose a sense of needing it to be real or like authentic in any way. And then and then you'll free yourself a little bit more mentally. And
1: also, Frio's self of any notion that its plot makes any sense or that it's trying to say anything about Elizabeth or Elizabeth's reign. There are scenes where they show us Elizabeth aging and looking in the mirror and talking to Beth about how Beth is young and beautiful. And in one scene, she even imagines Beth as her young self, and they show flashbacks from the first movie and they show us. Kate is the younger Elizabeth. So the movie is trying to say something about aging, and there are some scenes between Elizabeth and Walter Raleigh where she asks him if the situation was different, i.e. she was not the monarch. Would he love her? There are some scenes where she's shown isolated in the big rooms of the palace where everybody is shown very far from her, and then the crane camera comes at her to show her isolation. And so... I think the movie is trying to say something about the loneliness and isolation of power. But all of these things are muddled and don't cohere into any recognizable narrative. Um, uh, Do you agree?
0: Absolutely. I think it's a really crowded movie. Um, While I was watching it, I was thinking actually a lot about um, the Greta Garbo movie, Queen Christina, which I think is a very similar movie, but just does everything a lot better better than this one because um, there are a lot of parallels. You have a monarch who feels kind of isolated, um, who is craving adventure, who um, doesn't have a partner in life and sort of is prompted to try leadership differently because of what she's learning about her, her personal life through this like man that she meets or whatever. Um, and it sort of inspires her to like go on these new adventures and stuff. And this one I think has elements of that where it's like, she is trying to grow as a person or like discover more about herself as a person. But also there are all these like different subplots about like, who can you trust? Who, what's going on with, with Bess, with Scotland, with Spain, there are just 12 elements that, you know, I don't know if I'm watching like the growth of a military, a great military leader, or like the growth of this like woman who's coming into her, her own as like an aging person. Um, it's just all kind of crammed together and you never get a real sense of where her arc is going or why or what the movie is trying to say. And it just becomes um, very jarring to sort of switch tones constantly. Um, you'll go from one scene where she's just sort of joking around with an Austrian prince and then the next scene it's like the end of the world and Spain is you know ominously like praying <laughs> and like uh, cutting down trees and stuff and it's everything is at 11 all the time but in completely different genres And so you're just like, I don't know how to feel about any of this.
1: Which again goes back to what I said earlier. Just watch it in stops and starts. It will make more sense. And we didn't even mention that a major plot of this movie is of course once again Mary Queen of Scots. Who is played by Samantha Morton and she is shown in isolation as she was banished at the time when the movie takes place. So all her scenes kind of don't work at all. I felt really bad for Samantha Morton. She has this emissary who comes to her with news, and all she has to do is respond to him. So literally 90% of her scenes are just reacting to this person coming to her with news of Elizabeth. And of course, the last 10% is her execution, which is a story that we've seen many times before. It's been told many times. And I don't think Shaker or Kate or Samantha Morton or Michael Hurst, the writer, were interested at all in Mary, Queen of Scots. But they felt an obligation. They just had to have her since she was in this period. And of course, her execution leads to the Spanish Armada. So historically, they had to have her, but nobody tried to give her any nuance or character to play.
0: Right. So then when Kate is walking around sobbing, being like, stop the execution, stop the execution. I'm like, you literally didn't care about her until two minutes ago. I don't understand.
1: (laughs) Totally, absolutely. And then the movie did not care about her at all. So that whole plot is something that you can just skip through.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and it also kind of leads me to a point that I wanted to make about um, just how this film <laughs> thinks about Catholics in general. Like, this film hates Catholics so much. Um, <laughs> the way it just is so... Um vilified I guess just because I mean they're trying to make Spain an enemy state obviously that's it's going to serve the plot but the way that they tie it is so specifically to Catholicism whereas you know Elizabeth really isn't tied to Protestantism if that's uh, the right way to say that um, in a very intimate way it's almost like Elizabeth is more tied to governance and she talks about like almost democratic values a lot she'll talk about like um this is for the people and we don't want to what did i write down um the law is for the protection of the people and we must earn the people's love and all this stuff so she's very democratic and then spain is just like with all these cardinals walking around there are all these very ominous Latin chants happening. Um, So I thought that contrast was very interesting.
1: Yes, I agree with you. I think even in the aesthetic choices of the scenes of Jordi Mola as Philip of Spain, the blood red that the Cardinals are wearing, the pageantry of Catholicism is presented very ominously. The tone is ominous, the music indicates that, oh, this is bad, this is evil. So they're definitely trying to say that with every choice they made in those scenes.
0: Yeah. But then it's also funny because they deify Elizabeth so much. I mean, they literally just made her look like Joan of Arc, um, which is obviously the most Catholic thing you could do. So um, I thought that was funny how it sort of adopts Catholic logic in the way that it's portraying her in some, in some scenes, not totally, but um, yeah, that was funny.
1: I mean, there is no coherence to anything that's done to any of the characters. But that's a great point. If we just take the costumes, which frankly, besides Kate, the costumes are what I loved most about this movie. When she's presented in court, it's these lush, feminine, intricate designs that just jump off the screen. And then when she's giving her speech before the Spanish Armada, to your point, it was Joan of Arc. And the two kind of don't mesh at all. Um, I did some research and looked at what historians and people who are into costumes were saying about the costumes. And the one consistent thing I found about the costumes in this movie is that they were not historically accurate at all. In fact, so many people who were talking about this movie were just saying this is wrong and that they hated them. I don't. They don't make much sense from scene to scene, but they're beautiful.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I feel very similarly. I think Costumes really seem to be a make or break with a lot of viewers, which I didn't really know until recently when the fear over um – little women happened and people really hated that and I was like oh okay I don't I don't really care but um I agree there were so many times where I was just like this is gorgeous and I don't care that this doesn't make sense and that this scene is pointless of like a 360 shot of her standing again like a saint um in like her pale dress and face um The assassination scene is just so over the top, but she looks amazing. So I just kind of don't care.
1: The assassination scene is the most beautiful she's looked in this movie. And she's in virginal white, right? Right. Creamy white, which pops off the screen. Because sometimes, you know, plain white just doesn't pop up. This is gorgeous white. And then, of course, Eddie Redmayne comes in with the pistol and he's trying to kill her. And she looks great. And it's a wonderful scene.
0: Yeah, I'm like... You know, I would hesitate to if I were Eddie Eddie, and be like, dang, do I want to do I want to pull that? I don't think so.
1: (laughs) And doing my research, I looked at some interviews that Eddie Redmayne did about Kate, because, you know, they're linked together when he won his Oscar. It was a year after she won hers for Blue Jasmine. So she presented him with his Oscar and she was very happy and giddy when she did that. Uh, And so in this interview that. I found and i'll link to it they ask him if he wanted to repeat any scene from his career what would it be and he says this scene where he shoots elizabeth because of kate and how beautiful she looked and how wonderful she was to work with and you know that's the one scene from his whole career that he wants to redo wow don't blame him i mean i would stop the podcast right now and go watch it because she looks amazing
0: it's true they really they really addressed her to the nines there so I can't be mad honestly and I'm like a historical stickler kind of person most of the time so whatever exceptions are made
1: yeah but with this movie you really can't be that way you're just not going to have fun at all
0: it's a nightmare yeah like I went to the Wikipedia page
1: to look at some of the historical accuracy and if there were any interesting points that we could talk about any points that were particularly glaring but everything was wrong the years were wrong the relationships were not as they are presented there were people who were important to the story that are not in this movie at all there were others who were present at the spanish armada war or the speech at tilbury that are not in this movie so it just doesn't matter at all if we go down that route it's not going to be a fun conversation
0: yeah, it's really weird because I feel like historical accuracy would almost allow them to make a tighter, focused script. You know what I mean? If you were just trying to tell one aspect of this time really well, then it would have almost been easier. So I, I kind of am confused as to why it became like a four plot driven m- movie. You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, a scene I enjoyed that calls back to another movie from 1998, not the first Elizabeth, but Shakespeare in Love. There was this scene in Shakespeare in Love where Dame Judy Dench, as Elizabeth the first, is trying to cross and there is a puddle of mud and somebody puts their rope down in front of her so she doesn't have to step on the mud. That scene is repeated in this movie where Walter Raleigh, Clive Owen, puts his rope down so that Kate steps on it. And I don't know. If that's in a history book as something that happened to Elizabeth, I don't know why two different writers decided to include it in their movies about Elizabeth.
0: Yeah, that's funny. And in my head, and I have no idea if this would be true, but in my head, I don't see her like walking outside having access to mud
1: at any point.
0: So it's sort of, I'm always just like, oh, okay, cool. But I have no idea if that would be the case or not.
1: Yeah. 1585. Maybe it was muddy. It does rain a lot in England. (laughs) Also, another fun scene that makes no sense were a couple of scenes where Elizabeth has an astrologer and she's asking him for advice. What does he see for her? And it's funny to me because they're presenting Elizabeth as somebody who really just wants to know if Walter Raleigh is going to love her back when she has to actually go and face the Spanish Armada.
0: I know there's one line where she switches like 180 degrees. She's like, oh, I might be assassinated. So what do you see about my love life? And you're just like, oh, OK.
1: But actually, that is one of the very few historically accurate things. Elizabeth did have an astrologer that was a real person. It might not have happened like it happened in the movie, but she definitely had an astrologer as one of her main advisors.
0: Wow, just like us. QE2 has a co-star account.
1: Monarchs, they're just like us. So I wanted, of course, to discuss the big scene, that I have a hurricane in me. So let's set up the scene. So the scene is basically early in the movie. It happens around the 38, 39 minute. In this movie, which is two hours. And so the Spanish ambassador is in the court of Elizabeth. And he has come to complain about Walter Raleigh and his ships that have been attacking and pirating the Spanish ships. And so he accuses her of being a whore that Walter Raleigh has direct access to her bedchambers. And so Kate, as Elizabeth, goes really big, which is, of course, I love it when Kate goes big. Not many actors have that confidence. Acting doesn't always have to be subtle. You don't have to underplay. You can go big, especially young actors. And, you know, we'll talk about that later. So anyway, she goes to the ends degree. She goes from five to 7,000, and she delivers those lines, which I am not going to repeat, but I will put them right here.
0: You will leave my presence, sir.
1: Go back to your rat hole. Tell Philip I fear neither him nor his priests nor his armies. Tell him if he wants to shake his little fist at us, we're ready to give him such a bite he'll wish he'd kept his hands in his pockets. You see a leaf fall and you think you know which way the wind blows. Well, there is a wind coming, madam that will sweep away your pride.
0: I too can command the wind, sir! I have a hurricane in me that will strip Spain bare if you dare to try me!
1: And so, Izzy, I wanted to ask you, why do you think this scene endures? I know I'm just a sample of one, but it is a scene that I have watched a million times, joked about it with my friends. With this podcast, I have been entered in and been privy to the Kate fandom, at least on Twitter. And this scene is one that is shared a lot. People love it. Even though I remember when this movie came out, people's reactions were very different. It was like, ooh, she went too big. This was bad. But it's not. It's great. And it's fun.
0: Oh gosh. I i mean, it's iconic. I love it. And th- that scene alone is probably why I thought that I liked this movie better than the first one. <laughs> Cause that's the only thing, you know, you really remember is how beautiful she looked and also how amazing she is here. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think a the performance is incredible. Obviously the way she's screaming and like her, the veins in her neck are sticking out. It's just such a, like a visceral moment. Um, But also I just, I will give credit to the, the screenwriter here is that I just think there's, it's such a perfect encapsulation of this kind of power that is just unspeakable. Um, Like a, like a Royal power, a Monarch would be saying this, like you have a hurricane in you and just the, the visual of that and the amount of, you know, destruction that you can envision from such a unstoppable natural event, and, or even disaster, um, is just such a perfect way to uh, describe the amount of power that she thinks she has and what she is like able to do, and. Um, call upon to like destroy this other army. Like it's just so it's the perfect amount of grandeur that she needs to describe. Like I command the winds. I am a superhero. I am going to destroy you. I have a hurricane in me. And like the way that she's delivering at it is just so forceful and enormous um, that I think it just, it stands out. And I think also just when people feel mad, if I feel mad, I feel like I have a hurricane in me. you know what I mean like what a what a chaotic natural disaster to to describe. Um, I mean, I think it's funny that she would say that being an English woman who has probably never seen a hurricane in her life, but you know, I still it's I think it's great.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's those words. The hurricane, the command to win. Those words are so powerful and so strong. And Kate is delivering them so powerfully. You know, one hand is flying and her face is all contorted. And it's just this. And she's in this... Gorgeous, beautiful yellow gown. So even the color pops off the screen. It's just gorgeous. It's a beautiful moment. And yes, I agree with you. Michael Hurst, the screenwriter, gets credit for coming up with those words. They are what makes the scene. Besides, of course, the wonderful delivery by Kate. It's just amazing. Um, and I love that you mentioned having a superpower because I used to think that if I wanted a superpower, maybe I'd want to be invisible, but maybe I just want to command the wind.
0: Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. That would be great. Any natural power would be sick. Like, I just want to be Storm all the time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, for sure. (laughs) So we will take a short break and we will return in a moment to discuss more of Elizabeth The Golden Age, as well as the 2007 Best Actress Oscar nominees. Stay with us. This episode of Sundays with Kate is sponsored by Podcorn. I was looking for a way to find sponsorships for my podcast. That's when I found Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters like me with sponsorship opportunities like this one. Every week I get an email from Podcorn with the sponsorships available. I browse what's available and choose the ones that fit Sundays with Kate. I can set my own rate based on the guidelines that they provide. These guidelines are based on how many listeners and downloads my podcast gets. Then I can contact the brands directly for collaborations. Podcorn is there all the way to make sure the process runs smoothly and I'm compensated for the ads. If you're a podcaster like me, click the link in my show notes and go to podcorn.com to sign up and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. It's very easy. And we're back. And so Izzy, another scene in the movie, a clip that's available on YouTube that I have watched a few times and looking at the number of watches on it, it's been watched a lot, is the speech at Tilbury. So this is Elizabeth giving a speech to the truce before they go to fight the Spanish Armada. And this is a famous speech. It's in the history book. It's available in the British Museum. It is a moment in British history that I assume, I'm not British, but I assume people are familiar with I have to say, watching it and the way that it's stayed, I think the horse wins that scene. He completely ignores Kate. He's just moving up and down and going in circle. And the camera is following this horse while Kate is doing her best to deliver this speech. And I know that Shaker loves chaos. This is very evident by the three movies of his that I have seen. The two Elizabeth movies and Bandit Queen. And so he just went with it. What do you think of that scene?
0: Yeah. Oh, it's so weird. So first of all, it, was, it immediately reminded me of she's like in Lord of the Rings mode for sure during this scene. But then so when I'm thinking back of other scenes like that, because there's a million, um, the person who's on the horse is usually moving the horse because they're traveling along the line of soldiers. Like they're maybe a couple feet away going so they can you know be really close and talk to the person and to the soldiers and they can hear them but she's like a hundred feet away and the space that her horse is like traveling back and forth is maybe a couple feet so it just looks chaotic like she can't control the horse and not like she's trying to be heard amongst this like long line of soldiers and it's (laughs) it's so funny I thought I was in my head I kept imagining like a Monty Python movie or something where the horse is just like stopping to eat (laughs) and she's just trying to constantly like yell at the horse and wrangle like in the middle of this speech um yeah it's it's very funny but also she again just looks great in that armor so can't complain (laughs)
1: Looks amazing. And this is a very good point that you brought up that I haven't thought of, which is to make yourself heard, you have to travel up and down so all the soldiers can hear you. Yeah, she just is going around on that horse or, you know, the the horse is going in circles, but it's still a good scene. And again, this is what this movie does. This is supposed to be this very serious, big, significant historical moment. And because of the way that it's shot and the way that it's staged, it becomes funny and fun to watch. Mhm. I think we already talked about this, but let me just bring it up again. One of the other fun scenes is when an Austrian duke again comes to propose marriage to Elizabeth. And so he comes in to her court and sort of is pleading his love to her. And she's just making fun of him. And this is where, back to what I mentioned earlier about the humor in the performance, because Kate is really having fun. What Elizabeth is doing is that she's trying to tell him, you're not really in love with me. You're just here because this is politically advantageous to you. So let's drop the pretense and just say you want to go home. And then we can both go home. (laughs) And again, it's a very fun scene because of the humor, but also because in the end, while he just keeps, no no matter what she says to him, he keeps just going on with these love platitudes. So finally, she just speaks to him in German, which also is not historically accurate because there is no evidence anywhere that Elizabeth ever spoke German or knew German or was taught German.
0: Well, (laughs) Kate Blanchett also doesn't know German. (laughs) Um, Don't wanna call her out, but. Is it do you speak German?
1: Cuz I just thought it was German.
0: Um not like fluently, but I I've lived there and um took it in college, so I have a somewhat decent grasp. But her accent is like not bad, but sometimes, you know, it's pretty it's interesting.
1: <laughs> it's interesting because in a movie like Heaven, I don't know if you saw that one, But she speaks Italian, and all evidence is that her Italian is perfect. So maybe she didn't have time to learn German. She was shooting I'm Not There right after this. So maybe she was preparing to be Bob Dylan and didn't have time to learn German.
0: Yeah, I'll say like it's not Meryl Streep and Sophie's Choice good, but it's better than a lot of other ones that I've seen, you know?
1: I mean, as an Arabic speaker, I have to say. Arabic is really done very badly by people who don't speak it and in movies and TV shows just say the words phonetically. It's just like, I think the biggest defense for that was lost when that show was on TV and Sayyid would speak Arabic. I would just turn the TV off because it meant nothing. It was just gibberish.
0: <laughs> oh God, I can literally only imagine.
1: And recently I didn't see the movie, but Isabel. Huppert has a movie out maybe last year where she speaks Arabic and it was released in France. And I saw saw that clip and I love her, but I couldn't watch it. The Arabic was just atrocious.
0: No, yeah. She doesn't strike me as someone who would do that well. (laughs) Like other languages. Although she's very good at English.
1: (laughs) Yeah. One thing I wanted to talk to you about is that In this movie, there is a literal scene, and I I have touched on it before, where Elizabeth imagines Beth as her young self. So they cut away from Abby to a flashback of Kate as the young Elizabeth from the first movie. And so because of that, um, I thought about young actors who remind us of... Kate Blanchett. I mean, it's definitely not Abby Cornish, but who from the younger generation of actors or actresses do you think of when you think of Kate?
0: Hmm. Oh, like now? Yeah,
1: like now. And you know, when I think of Kate Blanchett, I think of somebody who knows how to move within a frame, someone who always acts with her whole body, someone who, like I said earlier, is not afraid to be unsubtle, to go big and sometimes never underplays. Like if you look at something like Cinderella, for example, there is not a moment in that movie where she underplays and somehow it just works. I mean, I just watched this movie, The Man Who Cried, which we did on the podcast last week. And she plays this Russian dancer and she has an accent and her body never stops moving in that movie. And it is this a performance that with someone else would have been really hard to look at but somehow she makes it great the accent is at 120 the body that never stops moving is at 150 and somehow it works and actually she was the only person in that movie that was worth watching so these are some of the things that I think about when I think about Kate and why I love her acting and her performances and that's why I was kind of stuck when i was trying to come up with a younger actor or actress of any gender who reminds me a little bit of kate because people don't act like that anymore maybe they're not taught that anymore even those who do theater don't do it you know even you know somebody a younger than kate actor that i really like is carrie mulligan and she's somebody that i've seen on stage like i've seen kate and i've seen her movies but her performances are completely different in that she doesn't do these things that i was just talking about like even on stage she's very subtle and she underplays and she does these things that you know they make an impact but it's not the same impact as
0: kate Mm -hmm. um so i guess the way i'll describe like how, how i think about kate first so like I think of her as a very intelligent, like she doesn't play anyone dumb. She is always somebody who's either the smartest person in the room or, um, is one of the smartest people in the room. She's also, like you said, like very theatrical, um, who she's usually almost kind of like regal. Like she's not, she's never playing someone who's like a wallflower. This person, her characters are always noticed and always, um, the center of attention. I would say, oh, that's so hard. I think the theatrical thing is what complicates it. Yes. Um because like you said, people aren't really doing that anymore, or if they are, it's kind of like as a joke, like an SNL sketch. If I were just going on her being kind of like a regal Mostly serious, but also like deeply intelligent person. Like I could see, um, like Carrie Coon doing that, Mm -hmm. for example, and she also like has a ton of theatrical experience. Although I don't really think that shows through in her screen work that much. Mm -hmm. Um, Just in the sense of like overplaying it the way that a lot of theater actors are prone to do. But um, or maybe I mean even the person who i see becoming or who the person i see growing into roles that kate has and has had through most of her career is saoirse ronan um because they both kind of have that otherworldly kind of chiseled appearance
1: yeah and they move from costume historical dramas to contemporary movies and are also, they're lucky to get their pick of roles because I think probably for their age group, they're in the top 5%, so they get the good roles first.
0: Right, and I think they're both being taken seriously, dramatically, right off the bat, which is funny because obviously like this is a big year for Saoirse Ronan too. Yes, absolutely,
1: this is the year of atonement, yes.
0: So, but it's not like Emma Stone, for example, or Jennifer Lawrence, who are kind of coming into dramatic roles, like sort of through becoming famous in other ways, maybe not Jennifer Lawrence, although, I don't know, I think that's more complicated. But like, yeah, with Emma Stone, it's kind of like she had to pro- quote unquote prove that she could do certain things before she got there. You know what I mean? Yes,
1: I think of Stone more in the mold of Shirley MacLaine. One person that we just have to bring up, because I think the media has been trying to sell to us as a young Kate Blanchett, is Elizabeth DeBecki. I don't look at her performances and think Kate, because she doesn't do the theatricality um, that Kate performs, that she's not as funny as Kate. Um Not yet anyway. She's still at the beginning of her career. So I haven't seen a lot of humor in her performances so far. But I think what she has with Kate, besides both being Australian, is this graceful essence that translates into the screen. It's somebody you can watch move. So if you watch her performance as the baddie in The Man from UNCLE, which is a fun performance, and the way that she moves in that movie, there is a scene where she sort of glides down a couch with her whole body. And she does that in some of her other performances, like for instance in Widows, she really fills the frame. And that's something that I associate with Kate. So maybe that's somebody who reminds me a little bit of Kate.
0: Yeah, and I think also her voice, so much of Kate's um, persona to me has to do with the fact that her voice just registers much lower. So um, we think of that as being more commanding and more, like connoting a leader, a leader. Um, And Elizabeth DeBecky also has that. I actually, I saw them together in The Maids. Yeah, Yeah, I did too. (laughs) Yeah, and I loved her in that. Um, I mean, it's like no joke to have to star with um, Kate Blanchett and Isabel Hubert together like wow that must be intimidating but I was so um, impressed and I felt like her stage presence was like very very similar to Kate's um, okay. but the roles in film I mean she just hasn't had as many opportunities yet but yeah I could totally see that maybe eventually happening.
1: So One other thing that I wanted to talk to you about is that reprising a signature role like Elizabeth, because, you know, this is Kate's signature role. It's a role that shot her to international stardom and made her a star. And not just that, you know, not just a star. She became this immediately the most respected, critically acclaimed actor of her generation. And so, you know, nine years later to reprise it, it was sort of a risk. I mean, people don't always think of Kate as a risky actor, But I think this was one of her risky moves. And because, like I said, it's not always successful. Like, if you look at somebody that we just mentioned, Shirley MacLaine, who reprised her signature role in terms of endearments in The Evening Star, that completely flopped. Nobody watched that movie. Horrible. Paul Newman was more successful. He did the same thing. He reprised his role in The Hustler in The Color of Money and won an Oscar. And I don't think Elizabeth's the Golden Age is entirely successful, but I think it's successful enough because the movie still endures, and I think it still endures because of the legacy of the first movie. Because you know, Kate managed to be critically acclaimed for this movie and get awards attention, even though the movie itself was just dismissed.
0: Mm Hmm. Yeah, I think it served its purpose in that. Again, the only thing any of this is that she looks pretty. And that she has that monologue. (laughs) So in a sense, like, so in a sense, it does kind of extend her association with Elizabeth in a positive way, but then it also is not a good enough movie to, you know, do anything more for it than to just kind of sustain our association.
1: And also, what helped Kate, if not the movie, is that this movie was released within weeks of I'm Not There. So in 2007, those two movies came out within six weeks of each other. And so everybody talking about Kate Blanchett that year was talking about how she can go from Elizabeth the I to Bob Dylan in the same year. And I think that sort of cemented her reputation. So the movie itself might have not worked or added much to her career, but the double whammy of those two movies coming back to back right after each other cemented her reputation as the best of her generation.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think that is probably my favorite Cate Blanchett performance. Um, and truly, I mean, I can't think of another example of anyone who's had two such disparate roles come out in the same year. Like, that's wild.
1: It is wild. But also lucky for her that there is this shorthand, like everybody knows off Elizabeth, and everybody, even if you haven't listened to a Bob Dylan song, you've heard of him, you know who it is. So there is this just shorthand, because they are these two very famous people from vastly different historical eras, and immediately everybody goes, oh, she could do those two. She's a great actor.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just even the physicality, to dress her down with the like very curly wig and like the little suits. And she looks almost kind of frail as Bob Dylan. Um, and then how powerful and like straight laced she is literally. And, but also just looks straight laced in, um, almost looks like she has two different bodies <laughs> in the, in the, these two films. She looks very frail and um, thin and like reserved as Bob Dylan but then as Elizabeth she's her posture is so straight and she looks powerful and strong um, for most of the film not all of it but um, that's kind of the sense I think the film wants you to leave (laughs) thinking about Elizabeth as a strong character so um, yeah I thought I think that that contrast is really interesting. That's crazy. Yeah, I was just kind of browsing her IMDb again before this. um, And we are really in like the height of Cape Blanchett stardom, I feel, um, around this time, like post notes on a scandal. Um, This is like, she's really hitting her stride here.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, the double whammy of these two movies that we were just talking about, plus next year she does Benjamin Button. And before this, it was not just Notes on a Scandal, but also Babel and The Good Germans. So there were these three years, 2006, 2007, 2008, where I think she made something like six or seven movies, which is a lot. But of course, then she immediately took six years off and went to run the Sydney Theatre Company and not make any movies until Blue Jasmine in 2013.
0: It's crazy, yeah. And The Aviator was in 2004, so that's not too long before that, too. I mean, this is just such an impressive list.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it's funny to me that she played Elizabeth in her 50s when I think she was 36, 37 when she shot this movie. So as usual, Hollywood does that all the time. But, you know, who are they going to get? You know, they got the right actor.
0: Has she um, updated at all? Because I know she has talked about frequently trying to do the th- a third Elizabeth movie? Has she made any recent claims about that? I think the most
1: recent claim was in the press tour for Mrs. America, which was just a few months ago. She mentioned that Shaker keeps talking to her about doing a movie about Elizabeth in the last months of her life. She seems open to it. So who knows? You know how these things, they, sometimes they take a very long time to come to fruition.
0: Mm-hmm. The thing is, she's just never going to look old. So it's (laughs) like, how do you you play that?
1: The other nominees that year for Best Actress at the Oscars were Marion Cotillard for On Rose, Julie Christie for Away From Her, Elliot Page for Juno, Laura Linney for The Savages. And that one was a surprise. There is always one who doesn't get a Golden Globe or SAG and then appears at the Oscars. And that year, it was Linney. And so before this movie played at Toronto in October, everybody was like, come on, they're going to give Cate Blanchett the Oscar that they didn't give her for the first Elizabeth's movie. And then the movie opened and everybody was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) But in the end, I guess we already mentioned the legacy of the first performance. That first movie made her secure the nomination, but the win was always between Cotillard and Julie Christie. Julie Christie's movie, the Sarah Pauly movie, Away From Her came out early in the year, I think in May or June. And immediately it was heralded as a great performance. But then Marion was like, hold up, I'm playing Edith Piaf. And not only that, I'm going to move to LA for months to talk to people and do interviews, you know, what we now call a campaign. And so that's how she won. Um, personally, I remember that year at the beginning, I wanted Kate to win. Once I watched the movie, I was like, okay, fine. Then I was in Marion Cotillard's camp. Um, you know, I might be a minority, but I don't really respond to Julie Christie as well as most people do. I think in her 60s movies, she had a a presence and she looked great. But she is somebody who has never moved me. And so I was definitely team Marion. What about you, Izzy?
0: I... Um, love La Villon Rose. I think it's one of my favorite like, biopic movies. Um, and I'm like, granted, I'm not a big biopic person, but I just think that um, it's just so beautifully constructed and found a way to tell the story of someone's life in a way that just didn't seem boring or like fan service. Um, and the core reason that movie works is because Marianne Cotillard just so brilliantly is able to take you from one woman's life when she's 20 years old to you know when she dies and it's just such a um, wonderful performance and i at the time was very happy that she won and I'm still very happy that she won I think that movie's fantastic um I, I actually haven't seen Away From Her. So mm-hmm. I can't really comment on that. I was actually surprised because I was looking through just like the letterbox tag of t- movies from 2007. And oh. I haven't seen so many of them. Like I'm just so behind. Um, I was in like a, a sophomore, maybe in high school during this time. So I don't know what I was doing. But um, you were <laughs> I guess. Um, but I like, I obviously at the time was at the perfect age for Juno and was obsessed with Elliot. So like, obviously I loved that, but I there's just something about Le'Veon Rose that really always stuck with me um, and made me a huge Edith Piaf fan. I don't think I knew who she was before I watched that. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I can't say that I'm personally disappointed, but I guess I also haven't seen um, away from her. So who knows? Who knows?
1: I agree with you about Marion. One of the things that I really love about her performance, and you know, it's, it's a shorthand when people say about these types of performances, is like she showed no vanity, but I think she didn't. And you know, when she was playing the older PF, every actor who plays that role plays it as somebody just so old. But what Cotillard did is that she played her as somebody who was trying to look young. And that is more truthful because, you know, old people don't want to look old. They're not just like, give me that cane. You know, (laughs) everybody is trying to look useful as much as possible. Um, That's just one note of the performance. I think it's very beautiful. And I think she was a deserved winner. And I think when you're looking at Julie Christie, she's not in that much of her movie. The movie is about her character going into dementia. But a lot of it is about how her husband deals with dementia and so when you put two and two together, Marioni is in almost every scene. She sings. She's giving us a whole life of somebody. You know, it's a biopic. And then you look at the Christie movie and there is just not that much of her. So, you know, in retrospect, you can see, totally see why Cotillard won over Christie.
0: Right. I think movies about dementia are really, really hard to do well. Like I've seen quite a few of them. And There's a lot easier. Yeah, that's so true. Um, and most of the time, I mean, it just feels almost the the gravity of someone, of someone's life dissolving in their brain is just so hard to convey well. Um, and I think this year, I mean, the father did that really well for me because it sort of reverses that problem where, you know, it's not sort of sidelining the person who has dementia, but rather exploring, you know, what's actually happening in their brain. So it's just more of, it's more of an opportunity to like show your stuff and like, uh, Anthony Hopkins really does a good job, like getting at the chaos of that. And, um, so again, I haven't seen away from her, but I, I, I can kind of imagine just from like that genre of movie, like what she's being asked to do. And I can understand how it would be like underwhelming cause it's kind of sad just to like watch someone fall apart but there isn't much you can do other than fall apart if you're witnessing it, you know, oh. rather than experiencing it. So, yeah. I haven't
1: seen The Father, but I look forward to it. I hear Anthony Hopkins is amazing. So other actresses who were in the awards conversation that year were Angelina Jolie in A Mighty Heart, Kira Knightley in Atonement, But a favorite of mine who was nominated that year at the golden globes but not at the oscars because she was in a movie that was mostly comedic where she sings is amy adams in enchanted she literally plays sunshine that's such not an easy ask or task and she does it brilliantly
0: yeah that's i think my favorite amy adams performance um like that in Arrival. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree 100%. And I was so sad to see that none of the songs from from Enchanted One <laughs> yeah. is the song from Once, which, you know, whatever. <laughs> but I like I, the songs from Enchanted are so good.
1: And looking at that year and what movies were critically acclaimed, it's a lot of movies about men. No Country for Old Men, Michael Clayton, There Will Be Blood. Lots of movies that don't even have bit parts for women. But a performance that I really love is Tang Wei in Lost Caution, which is a movie that should have been in the awards conversation, but it wasn't. I think she should have been nominated. It's one of those really risky performances. The movie is about a sexual relationship, but that's not why the performance is risky for the sex. It's because it touches on what an all-consuming and emotionally volatile relationship can do to a person. She was just really wonderful in it.
0: I was also, I was looking, again, as I mentioned, through the movies from that year and I saw that Margo at the wedding came out that year and I was wondering like what did people do you know what people thought about that at the time do you remember because I
1: don't I don't I don't remember exactly I know that right now today that, that that performance in that movie by Nicole Kidman is well respected and well thought of but it didn't make any ripples at the time. I think it was because it was one of those movies that come so late in the year, you know, how between December and new year's, like 150 movies come out and maybe only seven of them make any impact at all. I think it was one of those.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was surprised. Cause I just, um, I recall a lot of people, like you said, talking about it really pause, positively. Um, but that it wasn't really part of the conversation at all.
1: Yeah, and you know Noah Baumbach movies are kind of hostile to the audience sometimes? His characters are not likable at all, which is really a necessity for consensus in awards bodies. They have to like the character a little bit to vote for it. So that's probably another reason because that movie is very lacerating and Margot is just not somebody you want to spend any time with.
0: That's 100% true.
1: But if we look at the Oscars, the presentation to Marion Cotillard by Forrest Whitaker is a clip that I watch a lot. First, because Marion is just wonderful in her surprise and her happiness and she looks great winning and, you know, she gets flummoxed because at the time she didn't speak English as well as she does now. And so she says, you know, she's searching for words and she says, thank you, loves. Thank you, life. There are some angels in this city. Uh, she's really happy to win and I love to see that because sometimes winners just go up there and start thanking their agents and their wives and it becomes such a boring moment but this is somebody who was just so surprised and so happy and didn't even have the words and that makes it such a great moment at the Oscar and of course it's also a great moment because Kate is there and she is giving us these amazing reactions first of all they played the command the Wind clip as her clip for the, the Golden Age, when they announced her nomination, and her reaction to that is priceless. It is a reaction shot that I see used all the time because she looks a little bit repulsed at it. It's like as if, ooh, I sh- maybe I shouldn't have taken it all the way there. But no, Kate, okay, you should have taken it all the way there. You are wonderful. So I love her reaction. And then, of course, when Marion wins, she's so happy for her. And that's another moment. So all in all, it's a really great clip to watch. So I'll link to it in the notes of this podcast. You can go watch the full thing. It's really great.
0: Have you seen any interview clips from her where she talks about whether or not she can watch herself? Because I know a lot of actors talk about this, like, oh, I can't I can't watch myself. I I judge myself too much. Like, does she is she that kind of person normally? Or is that just from this clip?
1: I don't know. And I have watched a lot of interviews. This is not something that I've ever heard from her. But I also suspect that she is someone who watches herself because she is always in command of how she looks on screen. And you can't just know how you look, you know, if you're not watching yourself. I suspect she's one of those actors who would go and look at the shot right after it's taken and see how she looks and then makes adjustments.
0: She definitely seems like maybe she can't watch like watch the movie for what it is it's almost just like homework you know what i mean like research to see what she's doing and how she looks you know
1: izzy this has been a wonderful conversation thank you so much for coming back on the show you'll have to come back again because i have so much fun when you are my guest
0: oh thank you i have so much fun being here
1: and before we go let our listeners know where they can find you and your work
0: um yeah, so I am Bekind Rewind on YouTube and BK Rewind on Twitter and BK underscore rewind on Instagram. And I'm always there. I'm there too much. So Yes, please go
1: to the YouTube channel Be Kind Rewind. The latest video there is about an actress that I love, another actress who's not afraid of showing us many facets of herself, and that's Faye Dunaway. That was a wonderful video. I really enjoyed watching it. And you can find me on Twitter at M-E underscore says and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Sundays with Kate. And until next time, thank you for listening.